Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Ruby Rogues. This week on our panel, we have John. Hello, everybody. Luke. Hello. Dave. Hey, everyone. Wow, it feels so much more familiar to not say your last names. I'm Charles Maxwood, or Chuck. I'm Chuck. And this week, we're talking to Dimitri. Dimitri, do you want to say hi and let us know who you are? Yeah, sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Dimitri, and you can call me Dima if it's simpler, because I know that Russian names are hard sometimes. I started my software development career in 2012 and decided to focus on Ruby and Rails in 2014. Before that, I did some .NET development, front-end development, and iOS. And since 2018, I guess I work at, as a back-end developer at Evil Martians. I spend a lot of time working on open source. I committed to Ruby Rails, uh, GraphQL Ruby, and some smaller gems. And I also maintain some of my own gems. And I started working with GraphQL, I guess, in 2017. So it's like four years, about four years so far. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. Nice. So the discerning listener probably heard GraphQL about four times in your introduction. And that's what we're going to be talking about, specifically GraphQL and Rails. We talked about graffiti a couple months ago. And so this will be interesting to kind of compare the approaches and things like that. I know that some people love GraphQL and some people love to hate GraphQL. So I'm a little curious as we get going. Can you just kind of give us the elevator pitch for GraphQL? I know most people are probably at least somewhat familiar with what it is. But if we can start there, then we can start talking about why substitute this for REST or use it in conjunction with REST or what the trade-offs are or how to set it up or all that other stuff. But knowing what it is first is a good place to start. Yeah, sure. Let's try it out. So if you're using REST, probably got used to a concept of a resource that each kind of data you have is a resource and you have a list of actions you can perform on them. And you have these REST endpoints that allow you to fetch the data you need. But the problem is that sometimes you need a different set of data for each platform. For instance, when you're working with your own website and your mobile application. And in this case, we have two problems which come from the same place. The first one is underfetching, which means that when you fetch some data and you want to get the additional data about the additional resource, you have to make another request. So sometimes you have to make a lot of requests to get the full page. Imagine that you're working on Facebook or something. You have a feed, a list of friends, all that stuff, and you have to make additional requests. Or you can, you know, have a special request that allows you to fetch all things you need, but it also sounds wrong because when you have the mobile app, you don't need to load all your friends and the feed at the same time. So you have, you know, separate APIs for the mobile application and your website. The second problem is overfetching. It's almost the same thing when you work on the mobile app. And you get all this data for the website. You don't need you don't need, but you have to download it, process it, and you know use the network for that. So GraphQL tries to solve this problem. You can you can get any data you want, but you don't get any additional data that you don't want to get. The special benefit you get from GraphQL is, is the documentation, because the heart of the GraphQL system is its schema. Schema defines your graph, so you have a list of entities which are called tags, and these types can have connections between each other, so you have all these connections described, 
and you know what uh, data can you get from each point. And in this case, you don't need to have the separate documentation because you already have it. You just need to explain what does it mean in your system. For instance, what is user, what is customer, all that stuff. And that's that's it. You cannot have the outdated documentation because in this case, your GraphQL system just won't work at all. So I guess that's the main selling point for me. And also one more Thing, but not the last one, I guess. There is a special thing called subscriptions. Sometimes you don't want to get the data right now, but you want to get the updates. For instance, new messages in the chat or new notifications, all that stuff. And when you work with the rest, you have to build something from scratch, like make the Ajax request, make polling, make sockets by yourself, all that stuff. GraphQL solves this problem by subscriptions. In this case, you can describe the query you want to make and wait until the event happens. In this case, GraphQL will send the data to you and you don't need to think about how it came to your client application because it doesn't really make any difference between the regular query or subscription call. And this is the part of the technologies, so you do not even need to care about how it works because it's usually a part of the library you think. That's the benefits of GraphQL I wanted to mention to kick it off. I'm a little curious as we get going, John, Luke, and Dave, what all have you done with GraphQL? You mean other than avoid it? (laughs) (laughs) Or complain about it? Yeah. (laughs) No, I'm joking. So I think that GraphQL is really cool. From the perspective like Dimitri was saying, it has a lot of benefits, especially to end users consuming the API where they can only really fetch the data that they need, not everything, especially when you're talking about really large data sets and really complicated data sets, which maybe have a lot of associations associated with the main record that you were wanting to get back. So having the ability to just make one API call to this backend application serving GraphQL is really nice, opposed to having to make 10 different calls. So not only is that more efficient from the perspective of one verse 10 calls, but you also then have more ability to, let's say, pull it often, especially if the backend has some kind of rate limiter. And in order to serve this one page or this one application, you had to make 15, 20 simultaneous requests to get all that data. Well, if you're doing any kind of rack attack or rate limiting, then you were consuming 20 times for just one page view. So, you know, it definitely has some benefits from that perspective. But now here's my big buzz. Despite all of those glorious benefits, I think if I am developing a API backend that's going to be consumed by an internal or an iOS or Android application that I'm publishing to the store or by another in-house product or by a third party who is very comfortable with working with REST APIs, I'm going to go with REST API every day. But if I am going to create a API that I'm expecting all of my customers or users of the application to heavily write their own interfaces to everything, I'm just really providing a data source in a formatted way, then GraphQL might make a bit more sense. I can totally agree with uh, Dave. And there is no reason to just start rewriting all the applications we have with GraphQL. And also, if you have a client that wants to work with REST and if it's still comfortable to work with REST, that's completely fine, I guess. But sometimes it makes sense to start new projects with GraphQL, even if you don't have any experience with it at all, because sometimes you can find benefits. And by the way, there is a special trick in GraphQL, which allows to avoid all these different small requests, which is called batching. I guess 
all modern front-end GraphQL frameworks can do that. Batching is a thing that doesn't immediately immediately makes it just builds a list of requests and sends them once, let's say once a second or something. It helps a lot when you have to render a lot of things on the same page, at least in the initial lot. Yeah, I don't disagree with Dave at all. I think for whatever reason, maybe this has always gone on, but I feel like the last few years, there's been a lot of, hey, sweet, new tech comes out. Like I have this new hammer and everything is a nail. And I feel like GraphQL totally was a thing like that, where everyone was using GraphQL for everything, even when I couldn't find any of the benefits of GraphQL lining up with their problems, right? Like it was like everyone using Mongo to try and replicate relational databases, which Mongo is not good at, you know. That's my only beef. I think that GraphQL is awesome. To be frank, I've even said before, and I still think it's probably true. So REST is kind of like a standard, right? GraphQL is a technology. And I think that distinction to me is important because if we can create a standard on top of GraphQL that looks a little bit more like REST, I think that, we'll, in my opinion, I think it's likely that we'll see that GraphQL is a lot more powerful than it looks right now. Because to me, it looks very Wild Westy. It's like you have this cool new technology and everyone's all over the place with it. And so it's just a gigantic mess and everyone's blaming the technology instead of blaming the discipline of the people that are using the technology. That to me appears to be the source of most of the problems. I've only used it on toy apps so far. I haven't actually had a real problem in my life that made sense to match it up with GraphQL. Yeah, but I still think it's sweet. It changes the way that I think about things at the very least. Luke, have you done anything with GraphQL? No, I interviewed for a position with a company that made white label, white label apps. And they were heavily, this is in the UK, they were heavily, heavily into their GraphQL. And I, I was talking to CTO and I asked him why, because again, they were a rail shop, why they kind of put everything into GraphQL. And they were very mobile focused. And they felt that one of the benefits from using GraphQL was the kind of huge benefit on mobile, especially with more efficient network usage. So for them, any amount of complexity was worth the trade-off to get their apps running more responsive so the fact it was a kind of a newer technology didn't care they just wanted that improved customer experience so i'm really interested to hear what dimitri is saying where you're saying this is not just about efficiency this is actually a better way of organizing the interface between the client and the server and i think you said something like having a schema was one of the big wins which you don't get with a rest-based App. So it's interesting to, to hear what, why is, should, didn't, didn't schemas go away with XML? That was the last time I had to deal with schemas. Are schemas good now? Yeah, that's a good question. And I totally agree that it sounds like XML schema. But yeah, schemas are better now. I guess I'm too young to understand all the pain with XML schemas because I didn't work with them a lot. But yeah, the schema language in GraphQL is very simple. It looks like JSON, just regular JSON. You just define a type. You just call type user and define a list of fields like title is string and I don't know, orders is a list of order, which where order is another type, for instance. And that's it. You define all that stuff with text. And for instance, in Ruby, you don't even have to define the schema by yourself. You just define classes and it makes all the magic behind the schemes. You don't need to do anything at all. And then you can use the schema to send to your clients, for instance, some IE tools use schemas to have nice autocomplete and validate the client requests that they at least request the fields you have, for instance. And also you can use any documentation tool you want. You just show, show the place where you can find the schema and it will show a beautiful 
full screen with all the fields, connections, types, all that stuff. Yeah. Now, speaking of the schema, I mean, this was the painful part, at least when I've laid with GraphQL in Rails, is that I wind up essentially fighting the engine a little bit because I have to set up that schema for every type in the system. It, you know, at least, and I haven't tried it for a year or so, so the tooling might have gotten better. But yeah, so essentially I had to tell it, you know, the user's name is a string and the user's username is a string and the user's, you know, this, that and the other is a number. And, you know, in Rails, if you're doing REST, it just kind of all works. You know, I didn't have to do any extra work to get that kind of an endpoint up within GraphQL. So, yeah, that, that's my major beef with it is just that it created a whole bunch of work on the back end that I wouldn't have had to do if I was doing REST. I may yeah. argue you had to do that on the front end, right? Because you got all that through JSON. It was all the string. And then you had to decide, well, what is this? Is this a number? Should I be parsing int, you know, or is this actually a string or is it something else? If it was objects, you were cool. But otherwise, yeah, you had to play with it there. Yes and no. I mean, I agree with you and I don't. One thing that JavaScript has going for it is coercion. And so it winds up doing a lot of the, you know, it, it winds up doing a lot of the work for you on that front, right? And so unless you need like some very specific functionality out of it, you can just count on, you know, JavaScript doing the right thing when you do a coercive comparison or things like that. And so, yeah, I don't do a lot of typecasting in JavaScript. So for the most part, that doesn't matter as much to me. Yeah, I, I don't want to pretend like I had to do it all the time, but it was a thing that I did have to care about more often than I wanted to. Probably at least a few times a year I was dealing with something where I was doing a comparison or something. And, you know, for whatever reason, something that came from data was still a string and I had to fix that. And also when you work with plain Rails and you want to set up some kind of documentation, for instance, Swagger, you have to write all these comments near your actions by hand. And there is a chance that you'll forget to change anything and your Swagger will be outdated and no one will not. And when you have schemas, there is no chance that it will be outdated because it's your schema that's used for executing your code. So going down the schema route a little bit more, I used to use SOAP back in the day. And I mean, I don't miss it at all. This is me crying for you. <laughs> I don't miss it at all. But this isn't my first rodeo with schemas. Sorry, I guess Alexa thinks I'm talking to her because I said SOAP. I don't know, whatever. Anyway, I used to use SOAP back in the day. And I, I mean, there's some benefits that you get with schemas, which I think is kind of what you're talking about here. For me, the main thing that I always felt like with schemas is I could pull information from a completely new source. Well, I, I know that you're not doing this all the time, but I could I could know nothing about what was going on underneath, but I knew everything that I was allowed to do. That's a lot harder to do with, you know, RESTful APIs as, you know, we, we don't really provide that kind of thing. It's not impossible to do. I guess you could provide a page that does that or something, but nobody, it's not a standard by any means. But I guess why, for me, I can see benefits to it. And I feel like people are happy with the exchange when they're doing GraphQL. Can you talk more about like why the schema in this case is a good thing as opposed to like SOAP where I always felt, and Charles is actually just, Chuck, just expressed this a few minutes ago. He's like, well, I hate that I, in Rails, I had to like do all this setup like every time, right? Like we really hate writing boilerplate. That's why we write Rails, right? So why is this exchange good, I guess? Like what are we buying? an exchange for it. 
Well, yes, the problem is that in GraphQL world, world, they prefer things to be explicit. So they want you to define the list of fields you want to fetch, the list of fields you allow to fetch, all that stuff. And it could be possible to just generate the list of fields based on your table structure. That's not impossible. I believe there is even a gem for that. But there is a huge benefit from having a schema when you want to change your data. In GraphQL world, it's called mutations. Mutation is a special query that can change your data and it looks like a regular query but it's usually expected to change the data on the backend side and the thing is that when you define arguments for instance you want to change the price of the item for your internet store and you want this price to be number and you want it to be required you can be sure that it will be present in the parameters because otherwise GraphQL execution engine will just send the error to the client telling him that he's wrong. So from the one point of view, you add some boilerplate code, but from the other hand, you just remove the part when you validate the data because you can ask your execution engine to make it to make all the checks you want for you. I think that's a fair exchange. So is the big bonus then on the writing side? Is that what we're saying? Yeah, that's one of the benefits of having schema because you can make sure that things that you expect will arrive in a way that you described in your schema. Yeah, it's been a year since I've really touched GraphQL, but back when I did, one of the biggest issues that I had with it is that my code wasn't pretty. It, it seemed like GraphQL complicated it beyond what a REST API would do. And from that perspective, I just found it easier and more maintainable to stick with REST API, despite some of the benefits that GraphQL provided. Now, I know that with, I believe, Facebook created the concept of GraphQL or created GraphQL. And what they were dealing with, I'm sure, is a lot worse than what GraphQL provides. But I think with what Rails provides just out of the box or with just one or two serializer gems, then you have a much cleaner look without the GraphQL and just sticking with the rest. So if I understand correctly, you mean that you don't like the code you write when you're writing GraphQL in Ruby, right? Yeah, basically. Yeah, I guess it's a much taste. And I can agree that writing a list of fields each time you add a new entity can be not that great as a developer experience. Well, it, it wasn't just that for me. It was writing the fields and then writing the resolvers for all the extra stuff. I mean, it felt like it added a ton of work that I wouldn't have to do if I was doing REST. Yeah, I think the gem that was really popular a year or so ago for GraphQL had a very strange DSL that they used. Or at least it just seemed like it was over complicated. But that was probably just due to the necessities of what was required by GraphQL. I'm going to ask some really dumb questions here, so stand by. All right. What is running the GraphQL? I've looked at it, and I don't quite understand. I understand a process. You, you, you put your schema together, you write some supporting code. Yeah. Is the GraphQL query hitting... It can't hit Rails directly, can it? It's going through something. Is it hitting a node server, running on the server? No, GraphQL is basically just a, as John mentioned, a technology. So you're not having to parse it through another service, per se, or external service. It's just you have a standard of what the GraphQL should be structured as, as it's consumed, and how you are posting back to it for mutable changes and requests and stuff. But it's not actually going through a external service or anything. It could, but your Rails well, server yeah. can also be your GraphQL server. Yeah, it just translates it down into calls through your model just like anything else. 
it's kind of like you could pick Puma or you could run Apache or Nginx, whatever you want can be your web server. You just have to adhere to certain things in order to be that. Oh, uh, so, uh, this is my my weird bit, one of my weird bits for this week. So I've been working on, I noticed that the GraphQL has got a kind of subscription service you mentioned, which is looks like a kind of WebSockets-based live updates. I've been trying to make my own without using WebSockets, using long polling. And I was using Fin, because it's quite easy to use Fin to do asynchronous stuff using Event Machine. But uh, Fin appears to be missing, presumed dead, and everyone's using Puma now, right? They're getting no nods here so event machine yeah i guess people can't hear my nods yes yeah yeah there's an absolute agreement so i've been trying to get it working using uh, the rack hijack yeah which is a kind of way of keeping a connection open with puma my word that is a total nightmare. Uh, I can't tell you how long. I mean, it was. It took me to about two or two a.m. to six a.m. to get a hijack working, and now my web server stack is nginx into Passenger into Puma into my app. Is is this is this excessive? Do you think to run to run all of those for one web request? So yes. this is not GraphQL, but yeah, <laughs> I 100% agree with Dave. I actually reverse proxy to Puma in almost all of my setups, but I don't use Nginx plus Passenger and then also add Puma on top. You wouldn't believe how long it took me to get it working, but now that I have got it working, I quite like it. And it kind of, it feels like I've got a bit of a gang on the server instead of kind of lonely process serving web pages. You like it until there's a problem in production and then you'll well, rip is, all that out. This is why I like Passenger. <laughs> If I'm in production, passenger tells me like help, you know, I just run the passenger status and it tells me what's going on. And you don't you don't get that with the with the Puma. There's no kind of happy here's how what I'm doing Puma command. Yeah. So Nginx is going to be your web server. That's going to serve the HTTP content. And then Passenger, Puma, Unicorn are going to be your application service, which is essentially going to talk to the Rails application, convert all that ERB, Slim, or Haml code over into HTML, and then give that to the web server to then serve to the client. I know it's off topic, but so well, you the reason, Passenger the reason and Puma. The reason I'm diverting here is because I've got my happy long polling setup and that that works really well now apart from the huge the huge stack of processes it goes through but now i've got that i'm kind of looking at what i want to achieve is a site that sends state simultaneously to lots of different clients live so it's a production system maybe you've got 60 terminals open and i want state changes to propagate automatically so that if somebody at one terminal hits a button the others can see that yeah in real time so this is this is my motivation so that would be if there was a slightly less arcane way of doing that using graphql that would interest me you see because my choices at the moment are roll my own websocket system which i've done but it feels a bit homebrew or look at something which has already solved this problem which is a bit more standard so in graphql there is a subscription uh, special subscription type which looks like query and it can be run on different transports as far as I remember, along with Action Cable, it supports some other paid services. So you set up your transport engine, and after that, your client uh, client application will just start using subscriptions as a regular request, because in this case, it doesn't really matter where the data came from, because the data has the same type. So for instance, if you have a list of notifications and you have a query 
to get all the all the let's say unread notifications for the current user. You get the list from the query, and then as soon as the new notification arrives, you get the new uh, notification from the subscription. So it can be done with LAN action cable setup. When I first started taking computer science classes in college, I thought programming was just a joke. In fact, I changed my major over to engineering and started doing computer engineering and chip design. Then I found Ruby and I fell in love. I love Ruby. It was my first real programming language where I dove deep and really learned how to make software that makes a difference for other people. Since then, and the way that we got started with devchat.tv, we started a show called Ruby Rogues. It's currently in the 400s of episodes. We've talked to hundreds of people in the Ruby community about the Ruby community, about the Ruby programming language, about Rails, and about what makes good programming. So if you're interested in Ruby Rogues, or you just want to hear a long series of experienced programmers talking about real problems, then go check out rubyrogues.com. So is this a thing that I can get out of the box really easily? Or is this a thing that I have to set up, right? So I have to go set up some action cable stuff, tie it into whichever GraphQL gem I'm using, or maybe I'm using Graffiti, which we talked about recently, whatever, but I haven't tried yet. Is this a thing that's like easy to set up with some out of the box Rails gems that are easy to find? Or is this a thing that I'm going to have to go read three tutorials and kind of bumble my way through it? Let's say it's not super hard to set it up. Fortunately, I have a tutorial how to set up subscriptions and all the stuff you need to start your GraphQL application. And yes, that's a part of the standard gem. The only thing you have to change if you're using any cable, have you heard about any cable, by the way? So in this case, you'll have yep. to set up one more additional gem and it will work. Okay, sweet. So one thing that I'm wondering about is, yeah, you know, we, we've talked a bit about the boilerplate that has to be written. So is there a generator or something that I can run that will take care of a lot of that stuff for me? There are a special generator in the GraphQL Ruby gem that will create all the stuff you need to start, all the base types, controller, add a new road. So yeah, after that, you'll have very simple schema with one type, I guess. Just trying to track, what is the gem that's kind of been around for like, I don't want to say like three or four years for Ruby stuff? Is it GraphQL Ruby or is yeah. it a different one? It's a GraphQL Ruby. Some okay. you guys mentioned that there was a strange syntax. I guess you work it with the previous version with blocks. Looks like JavaScript, right? A lot of braces. Yeah, that's very possible. So some time ago, they completely rewritten the API and just use classes as all other Ruby gems do. Yeah, as long as I can write clean, maintainable code, then I think GraphQL, you know, is viable in a Rails application. But as John said at the beginning, it's not a hammer that will fit every nail. You have to use it when it's appropriate, not just because it's what you're familiar with or because it's the latest and greatest. If it's the right tool for the job, then absolutely use it. Yeah, I think for me, like the issue is trying to understand a sort of nuanced view of when is the right time to use it. I think my understanding thus far from a very simple standpoint is is very similar to what you said earlier, Dave. If I have control of the client, right, so I can write it myself and I have resources that very easily fit sort of the rest kind of framework, then I don't really have a lot of motivation right now to diverge from that and go to GraphQL. But if, if I start to leave that, if I start to look like Facebook, where I need to know about, you know, person X and a whole bunch of stuff about person X's friends, that's where I feel like I start to go down the road uh, where GraphQL is good. And so I don't know if any of you guys or Dimitri, if you guys have like a more nuanced view of, of where you're like, oh, here's the line in the sand when you might want to consider that. But I, I don't have a very good line at all. 
Well, as I mentioned before, uh, when you have more than one client or there is a chance that you'll have more than one client in the near future, that might be it, the baseline. You can start using GraphQL because in this case, you won't worry about what data will be needed on each platform. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the way that I'm kind of envisioning it is say I build a Dragon Ruby or a React Native or something, you know, build an app with those. And I'm actually looking at some of this stuff for some of my personal things, right? So I could build a front end off of the GraphQL, you know, in React or Vue or Angular or, you know, have some kind of tie-ins with stimulus or something, depending on how I wanted to structure the front end of the web app. But then the mobile app, I'm finding more and more people want to interact with apps on their phones, right? And so, you know, I may have slightly different interface or slightly different needs on a mobile interface on the web, or I may offer an app, you know, like we said before, written in GraphQL or something and, or sorry, in React Native. And so if I'm doing that, then having having that option available as well also works. One thing that I'm wondering about, though, is the authentication flow and like permissions and security security and things like that, right? So one thing that I'm working on right now is I'm trying to pull together like basically a dashboard for the podcasts that essentially, you know, I can say, okay, you guys are all hosts on Ruby Rogues. And so, you know, here are all the upcoming episodes. Here's all the prep information, right? So instead of it going through Zapier and Google Docs, which is what we're doing right now, you know, it just pops up a notification on your device and says, hey, you've got you got this new thing, you know, come check it out, come prep, whatever, you know, and stuff like that. But I'd like to be able to manage all that stuff on my phone. And so I'm not sure how to set things up so that the device can actually, you know, authenticate. So they go to the login screen in React Native and it sends the login information over the wire to GraphQL. Do I do my authentication through GraphQL or do I do it through a device REST endpoint and then just kind of pass around a JavaScript web token? Or how do you manage all that stuff? The fun thing is that when you try to find this out in the documentation, they say that we don't care about the authentication, just do it as you do it usually. In this case, yes, you'll have to set up something, token or device endpoint or something else. And in this case, when you do some auth stuff, you don't have any choice, you have to use REST because when you get the contact from, let's say, Facebook, you'll have to set up this REST endpoint. But then when you have the token, you just put it somewhere into header, into cookies as usual, and perform the authentication on the Rails level, on the REST level. Because GraphQL claims that it's transport agnostic and they don't care about the protocol they use. They do care about the protocol they use. So I would put my token, say, in the header or something like that. And then is there some level of checking that I can do before it executes a query? Yeah. So let's briefly talk about how GraphQL request is processed in Rails. So there will be after you run the generator we discussed before, there will be a special road called GraphQL. It will be paused because sometimes queries big enough to not fit into get requests. So there will be a post into a special controller, which is called GraphQL controller with a single action called execute. And this controller action contains a single call to GraphQL schema. There is an object called GraphQL schema with the execute method. You pass your query, your variables that came from the client, and then you can pass a context. And context is just an object, a hash, which can contain anything you want. And in our case, it will contain current user object. So you can authenticate user, uh, make decision about his permissions, and put it into the context. And this current user in the context will be available everywhere inside your GraphQL tabs, resolvers, all that stuff. So it's pretty similar to just regular application control we all write every day. You also mentioned some optimization questions. Is this the N plus one for the optimization? 
Did you freeze? Yeah, Yeah, I guess. People do that a lot when I ask them questions. I think it might be me. Yeah, so the question was about N plus 1 optimization. There is a big problem in GraphQL with N plus 1 because sometimes you get a request to fetch some entity and a list of entities inside of this entity. And if you miss something, there is a chance that you won't make a join in your database and you have a lot of small database calls. Just a classical N plus 1 problem, but it's a little bit different in GraphQL world because uh, there is a chance that you will make a ton of small requests uh, during V1 GraphQL request. And there are uh, a lot of solutions to this problem. So the most simple and naive approach is to just figure out everything you need. When your application is small enough, you can just, you know, list all the possible associations on the top level in your query type and they will be loaded. Sometimes it works because some applications are small enough. And also there is an alternative solution. I have a gem called Active Record Lazy Preload. It works in exactly the same way, but it doesn't really uh, load everything you listed right now. It loads it as soon as someone tries to access the association. In this case, you can list everything you need, but it won't make a lot of requests on the request that you need to make. But of course, it doesn't really work on the huge applications, so there is a different solution. The solution is called Lookahead, and it's a part of GraphQL Ruby gem. The idea is that you always can ask the execution engine if it wants to fetch a specific field on any level you want. So for instance, when you're resolving a user who can have orders, you can ask, hey, are we going to load orders right now? And if it says that you're going to load orders, it, uh, you can make a special request to database to avoid n plus one. And the last, the most complex solution, but it works in huge applications, uh, is called GraphQL Batch, is a gem by Shopify. The idea is that they use laser resolving. They stop resolving your field as soon as it understands that you're going to have a possible N plus one. It collects all the IDs that it wants to load and then makes a single request for all the entities you want to load and then just puts the data into the slots, let's say. So I think N plus one problem is solvable in this case. So another thing we have on our list of discussion points is caching. So does, I guess, where does that caching occur? Because if you can kind of request anything with GraphQL, then I'm assuming that it happens at a lower level where it caches the fields or the result that it gets somehow and then builds the response from there? Yeah, there are a lot of problems with caching. So first of all, as I mentioned, GraphQL requests are usually post requests and it's impossible to use HTTP cache with posts. And there is a solution for that. There is a special technique called GraphQL persisted queries. The idea is that when you send a request to the server, from the client sometimes you know that you're going to send this request more and more the same one and in this case you can just send a fingerprint of this request there is a special way to calculate this fingerprint that is known by server and client in this case you can send the fingerprint and server knows what it wants to return and if it doesn't know what query you want to make it will respond that he doesn't know about the query and ask the full version when you use this technique you can use get requests because there is no chance that you will send this huge query using get in this case you can use http caching if you if you want as far as i remember it's possible to do it using graphql ruby but only in pro version so i've written my own gem for that. That's interesting. So essentially what you're saying is that, yeah, you can create a fingerprint for the query that you made and then you can make a GET request and take advantage of the HTTP caching anyway, as long as you're making the exact same query. Yeah, because of the variables, you usually make the same request from not only a single client, but from all the clients for the same version. So most of the time you have cache hit. 
then uh, does the it invalidate group? the cached uh, responses if some data changes? Like, does it keep track of it the same way that Rails does for other caching? So in this case, we don't really care about the invalidation because we cache only query itself, so the text of the query. And HTTP caching has to be invalidated by Rails. So manually, there is no solution. I tried to implement something, but stopped and figured out that we need to use a different solution. There is an idea that we can cache GraphQL responses. From the first perspective, it seems like it's impossible because each time client makes a request, it can ask for any data we want, but it's possible to cache the part of the query that you don't want to resolve each time. For instance, when you have the e-commerce site and you have a list of popular items, you probably want to show the same list of popular items to, to everyone and you don't want to go to the database to fetch them. That's why we created a special gem for that called GraphQL Fragment Caching. It was extracted from one of Evil Martian's projects, initially implemented by Vladimir Dementiev and Nikolai Switchkov. The idea was that we want to remember the part of the response, and when a client wants to get the same thing, we just take the part of JSON from the cache, from Redis or somewhere else, and just send it to the client without resolving it. Unfortunately, it wasn't possible to do it in GraphQL Ruby because there were no mechanisms to stop execution, so I had to make a pull request to add this mechanism. So Right now, it's possible to use this thing even if you, if you are not using the gem. But when you use the gem, you can specify the cache key. It will be built by the gem. And of course, you can always invalidate this cache if you want. And also, you can also specify a time to it. That seems super useful. All right. So is there anything else, Dimitri, that, that you feel like maybe we should be doing with GraphQL that's sort of not common practice? Like, is there a best practice that we've sort of missed or anything along those lines that we just haven't gotten to today? Yeah, I think we could talk about some best practices. Some of them are sound similar to things we do in REST, but a little bit different because it's a different technology. So there are some possible security issues that can happen with you when you're using GraphQL. So as we mentioned before, it's possible to ask everything you want, but there is a chance that your client will make a request that will just blow up your database because it will be a huge select with a lot of giants. And there is a solution for that. As far as I remember, it's not a part of the specification, but most of the uh, libraries have this built in. The idea is that they calculate the depth of the query and the complexity depth is amount of entities you touch when you go down the graph. And complexity is a complex metric that includes amount of fields uh, you request depth and so on. And you can limit these to variables uh, on your execution engine. In this case, when someone tries to make a huge request that you know that won't be made by your by your real clients, it will just ask the client to make a simpler one. I guess we didn't face such problems with the rest. And also there is one more interesting thing. As we mentioned before, it's possible to expose your schema to have, let's say, public documentation. But also in this case, it's possible to see your to see your schema using GraphQL because there is a special thing called introspection. You can make queries to see the schema. I'm not sure why it's dangerous, but some security specialists think that it's security problem, that we should hide introspection from public users because they don't really need to see it and use it only in development and maybe staging environments. So sometimes it makes sense to turn off introspection in, into the production environment. There is a special setting for that in GraphQL Ruby. You can just turn it off and it disappears forever. It will be impossible to ask for this data. I'm going to change the topic unless there's more to the best practices. 
there is one small thing to mention. There are some best practices related to code, which will be hard to discuss without looking at code. Like we shouldn't expose data from other entities, all this stuff. So I have a small Rubocop extension for that, which will help you to check your code. Of course, these rules are opinionated because it was created by me, but sometimes it might be helpful. Sounds good. How do you test your GraphQL? Do you just make a bunch of queries? Is there a better way to do it? So it depends. Uh, there are two ways that I'm aware of. The first one is making queries. So you can just make a test for like GraphQL controller. So you define your query, then call the controller and I mean, make the request to call your controller and then you'll check the response if it matches to the data you expect or not. But when you write a lot of such tests, it sounds repetitive. So there are two ways that you can avoid it. The first one is to write a shared context in respect. In this case, you'll have some kind of DSL that will handle things for you. Or there is a different approach that I heard of. There is a gem called Fixturama. The idea is that you put all the data you want to check to YAML files, define a single test, and just have a lot of folders with these YAML files, like what you ask for, what you expect, and it will just compare the result with the uh, data you expected to get. It sounds like it would be cool to test types directly, but, but right now it's impossible because of the GraphQL Ruby architecture. It's impossible to just create type object from scratch and ask it to serialize something for you because it heavily relies on the execution engine. So right now it's not possible, but maybe it will change in the future. Did you, what Chuck did or uh, Dave, you guys were complaining a little bit about it earlier, did you guys do any testing with GraphQL when you did your implementation? What is this testing that you speak of? Test okay. is a four-letter word, right? All right, all right. No, I did tinker around with it, but I didn't dive into it too much. And it was really just simple mini tests, just make a request, expect this back. I got yeah. it back. I mean, it's really not too, too different than doing other tests on a REST API. Yeah, most of my testing was manual because I was more playing with it than actually trying to get something out of it. But having spent time on some of the front-end systems, I mean, that's where GraphQL is really, really nice, especially if you're using something like Apollo that just gives you a whole bunch of powerful features out of the box. Anything else? Any other uh, thoughts or advice? Nothing on the top of my head. The only thing I wanted to mention is that I'm surprised that no one asks about the performance because sometimes people think that it's so hard to parse these huge GraphQL requests and then respond to them and that GraphQL adds some overhead to your processing. I tried to prove it and figured out that it's not that big problem. I have a benchmark that tests the memory consumption by GraphQL compared with JSON API, which, I mean, JSON API standard that makes the similar thing that GraphQL does. And there is no significant difference between them. And also I tried to process really big query. Like there were eight fields and each field had a nested, a nested entity with eight fields and so on four times. So this, that was a really huge request and it took like one second to process, which is a big amount of time, but we usually don't make such requests. And that's why I do not recommend to use batching that I was mentioning before. And also after I published this benchmark, things became better because right now there is a new execution engine in, inside GraphQL Ruby, so things are even faster now. So I can say that it doesn't really add any overhead to your system. Yeah, we didn't bring up performance because Rails can't scale, so. Yeah. It's cool. People that don't know how to use the tool can't make it work. I think that's normal. <laughs>
Yeah, so instead they reach for stuff like React. Oh. Oh, I, oh. I was definitely not trying to open Ouch. that can of worms. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. We, we can all pity the Django devs. Anyway, any other thoughts or things that we want to bring up before we go to picks? Yeah, why can't we just send SQL over WebSockets? <laughs> I, I think people do this probably somewhere. No, we're supposed to put everything in a C data tag, right? Yeah, there we go. Sweet. Are you freelancing or moonlighting? Or maybe you've thought about going out on your own. Every week, we have a group of developers at various stages of the freelancing journey on The Freelancer Show to talk about becoming better at freelancing. We also bring in experts to talk about marketing, SEO, and delivering high quality to clients. So if you're interested in going freelance or you are freelance, check it out at freelancershow.com. Yeah. All right. Let's do some picks. Dave, why don't you start us with picks? All right. So I recently got a StarTech under desk computer mount to free up some desk space. And this thing is really cool. I mean, granted, I now hit the computer with my knee a bit, but having it off the desk is really nice. So that's my first pick. And surprisingly, my computer weighs like 35 almost 40 pounds, and it supports the weight nicely. Oh, wow. And then the second pick is Noctua Fans. So with the age of digital learning and two of my three soon-to-be four kids, we're expecting if you didn't know. They Congrats. Needed... Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. I, I think after three kids, it's supposed to be condolences, but thank you anyways. I have five. You're going to name the next one Pearl? <laughs> no, I've been ixnayed on any more developy programmer kid names. I already got Ruby, so that's that's a win. But with these computers that ended up building for them, I just went to my local micro center and bought a whole bunch of parts. One thing I forgot to get was case fans. It came with one case fan on the back for exhaust, but I didn't have any intakes. And so I had some spare RX 580 graphics cards and and did some load testing and let the kids play some games. And that case got super hot. So I went out and on Amazon ordered a couple of Noctua case fans. And those things are amazing. Not only are they quiet even when they ramp up, but it made a huge difference in the cooling of the PC case. So Noctua fans is my second pick, as well as just like case fans in general, having enough of them. Congrats on your kid, by the way. And I'll also thumb up Noctua. I think they make pretty reasonably good fans. They're I used to be really into fans. I was going to say something dumb, but I didn't. John, what are your picks? I feel like I should recommend like some gentle type fans, which you can't like buy anymore or something like that. But they used to make these really cool fans that were like super silent, but they're like impossible to get and super expensive now. So this week, I just like want to to give some pretty much a shout out to like because I think that a lot of people are familiar with Sticker Mule. Yes. Thank you. I just had the name like five minutes ago and I just forgot it. Whatever. Anyway, best experience ever getting stickers every time. I have gotten stickers from multiple places in the past. And then a few years ago, I switched and started using Sticker Mule. And I just got stickers again recently. And they're just so like flipping amazing to work with. And they let you freaking cut out your stickers in the shape of your sticker, which is exactly what I want. So they're awesome. Just saying. They're if you're like doing icons too. or something. Yeah. yeah, they're great. I put them out in the sun. Rather, I do the bumper test. So I put a sticker on my bumper and see how it fares to the weather. I've had a bunch of stickers which just faded over a course of two months. Any sticker mule sticker I put on the back of my car has always lasted years and years. Yeah, they're nice. they're pretty awesome. And as far as pricing goes, like, I don't know, I feel like they end up somehow man managing to be cheaper too than like if I were to get them from like Moo or something. So 
Yep. Also, Moo doesn't do the weird shapes that I want. That's it. That's my pick. Awesome. Yeah, I like Sticker Mule. They're awesome. Luke, what are your picks? I got one for fans. This is a uh, an ESC. It's a speed controller for a drone motor. You can get them for about $20, $30 and up. And this is controlled by a the same PWM signal that your computer fans run off. And the voltage going in on this particular one will run off a 12-volt rail. If you want to put it in your PC case, you can hook up the minus 12 and a 12 and run really quite insane ones of these. So if you want to make a really ridiculous computer fan, you can hook one of these up with a cheap drone motor and get them for, again, about 20 bucks and put a carbon fiber propeller on it. And that will move the most amazing amount of air your PC has <laughs> ever seen. It's really unsafe, obviously, because it's designed to live it's designed to lift things not to provide a gentle airflow but if you want if you if you miss truly silent fans that is a great way to get a totally silent fan i've i've, I've used one in the past it's really hot here so i've used one for uh, as a like a desk fan obviously cats you know, it's not safe around cats how many of those does it take to lift up your computer case Oh, sure. So this particular model, you can get about three kilos of thrust out of it if you really push it and uh, you get everything matched up. So if you... Way too uh, many to run off your power supply. Okay. If you, yeah, as long as you've got a big enough propeller, you can lift anything, right? It's kind of... <laughs> so my pick for the week is not very dangerous computer fans. It is my server request stack, my much maligned Nginx passenger puma stack which i'm using and yeah that is my pick you might not like it but i picked it and part of the motivation for this was a post by the passenger blog which talks about combating slow loris ddos attacks by stacking up nginx and passenger and puma and they, they explain part of the motivation behind it so that's my pick blog post by fusion from partying like it's 2018. Awesome. I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks myself. The first pick is I've been reading these books by Brent Weeks. The first book is called The Black Prism and it's high fantasy. Really, really been enjoying these books. I'm on book four right now. I can't remember what the name of the book is, so don't ask. But anyway, The Black Prism is the first book and I guess the, the series is called The Lightbringer series. And anyway, I've been listening to it on Amazon. It's narrated by Simon Vance, who's an awesome narrator. So I'll put links in for the book and I'll I'll drop my affiliate link for Audible because that's where I'm consuming it and really, really enjoying it. And yeah, that's going to be my pick for today. Dimitri, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I just thought about the email I've got yesterday that this year, as usual, will have a Hacktoberfest in October. So that will be my pick, I guess. Awesome. And if people want to connect with you online, do you have a blog or a GitHub or Twitter or whatever? Yeah, I will send you links to my GitHub and Twitter profile. And also, I sometimes write articles in the Evil Marshall's blog, mostly about GraphQL and database stuff. Cool. All right, folks, we'll wrap this one up. And until next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.